Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host Lucas Ravodio, feeling a little like Miles Teller in the role of an ambitious young jazz drummer because this has been a week of straight up whiplash as far as Los Angeles food is concerned. From the highs of 19 LA area restaurants being named James Beard semifinalists to the devastating news that 94 journalists at the Los Angeles Times, including some food journalists, are losing their jobs, it's been a week of high highs and low lows. Father Saw joins us to dissect it all. We have some fun, congratulatory chat about the amazing restaurants like Amiga More and Kuya Lord getting the James Beard nods. And we have a thornier conversation on the importance of local media and what can be done to ensure a more sustainable media ecosystem moving forward. On an entirely positive note, we're also joined today by Tracy and Shad Davis, the power couple behind Vietnamese fast casual concept Mi Lai Kitchen. Tracy and Shad walk us through the inspiration for their rapidly expanding spring roll empire. We talk through the nuances of opening a fast casual concept, why some fast casual concepts succeed better than others, and the discoveries they've made as they translate the beauty of Vietnamese cooking into the fast casual format. Tracy also talks to us about her inspiration for opening Milai in the first place, and Shad tells a hilarious anecdote about how he chooses to spend his birthday each year. Tracy and Shad are an absolute delight, and their food is delightful too, so make sure to stick around for that. Without further ado, dear listener, let's chow down. Welcoming back to the pod, a man who has told me many, many times unsolicited that his favorite nut of all time is the macadamia nut. It's Father Saul. Father Saul, how you doing? How you doing, man? This is actually fake news. By far, walnuts are the best nut out there. I want to represent for my for my actual taste, but hey, nothing wrong with macadamias. What's uh? What do you like so much about walnuts? It's hard. I don't even know. It's hard to say. I it's just like something about. I think I used to have them a lot when I was a kid. You know, like in preschool and stuff, you could like crack walnuts and eat them. It must be something nostalgic. Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually something we used to do in Italy too is have a big-ass bowl of shelled walnuts. I'm sorry. Yeah. Walnuts still in their shell after dinner. And there was like a ritualistic thing about like cracking them open after dinner. So I can relate to that. Yeah, how about that? Walnuts and pistachios. But hey, I got plenty of room for macadamias on my roster. Hell yeah, good to know. I don't know why we're talking about that, but uh, but maybe we'll find out someday. Uh, it's looking suspiciously gray over there in Seattle. Oh man, it, it actually, it's been nicer than it was maybe a week or two ago when you came and surprised me for a visit. It was quite cold and then it got even colder, but we're kind of, I think, through the darkest, the darkest of the times. But yeah, Seattle is doing Seattle things. I'm excited for Seattle to be a close chapter in your life, but we will not talk about that today. What we will talk about is Emily's, your girlfriend's birthday. How did the birthday go? It was nice. Yesterday was pretty chill. It was her birthday yesterday. Uh, Got some nice food-related gifts, hearkening back to our holiday pod. Uh, Emily's gone big on soups this year. The way I'm doing gorilla tacos, she's doing soup. So I got her a recipe book called The Soup Book. Which actually looks really dope. It's I, I I like it when recipe books are split out by ingredients. I found so not like recipe recipe recipe, but like parsnips. And here are the parsnip recipes, right? I just find that easier to get my head around. And that's how the book is set up. Got her a cute little uh, customized soup spoon. Got her her own knife labeled Emily's knife. Uh, yeah. So it was it, it was a, it was a food heavy birthday. And then of course the bigger gifts are going to be coming in February. We have a 
little Portland trip planned. We got uh, a spa trip planned. It's a, it'll be a good time. Nowhere near, nowhere near how good she she nailed my birthday. And uh, you alluded to the big surprise about that during our last pod together. I love the gift in which you got her a knife that says Emily's knife. I can just hear <laughs> that coming up on the stand, you know, in the future, <laughs> like in the future, like. So tell me, tell me about this knife. What did it say on it? You know, just like I, I, I just feel like you're you're backing yourself into a corner here, my man. Well, I, I see it more so as self protection because if it's a murder weapon, you know, you know who's behind it, right? Like I, I feel like it's more of an insurance policy. I just label all the things that could be used as weapons against me, uh, and therefore built in security. I don't know. This is a weird topic. I don't know why we went down this direction. <laughs> We're doing this because true crime sells, buddy. That's why we're doing it, okay? <laughs> um, I, I heard you have a little bit of feedback on the noodle countdown I've embarked on so far. I, I do, man. Well, when we, when we last spoke the first week of January, we were talking a lot about, or you were talking about how frightened you were of this particular challenge. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were a little bit cowardly. You were like, hey, this is going to be, because a whole new world, right? Sandwiches are pretty universal. Tacos you've been eating for years in L.A., Pizza, that's that's your whole bag. You're Italian. Um, and, and that was the entree into this whole adventure. Noodles was like the first big departure. And you were, ta- you were talking about how you wanted to make this more of a learning experience, how you were a little intimidated by the whole world of noodles out there, how diverse it is, how unfamiliar, unfamiliar you are with it. And therefore, you know, bringing in some guests to come eat with you, not eating as alone at times and learning along the way. And I got to say, man, not to you know, pat you on the back or really pat ourselves on the back on this podcast, whatever. I've loved this content. I think this is the best stuff you've ever done. And I think it, I don't know what it is. Well, part of it is like having guys like Diego and others on the pod explaining the noodle dishes they love. That's awesome. And I think the overall uh, uh, posture shift to you being entirely in learning mode is really coming through and it's making, even though like, of course you had a lot of commentary on pizza and tacos, you also brought information yeah. there. There's just something about the the perspective and the role you're playing as entirely new to this, to this world, at least the world that you've explored thus far, that's really coming through and I'm enjoying it. So, so well done so far, buddy. Well, I am uh, astounded because I'm not used to hearing nice things from you, so uh, I appreciate that. Um, I, I have gotten a little bit of feedback so far from listeners. Nobody's called me hard of tasting yet, so I'm waiting for that. I, I'm waiting for somebody to one-up that, honestly. So if you're out there following my comments and can think of some sort of creative insult, bring it on. But um, one of the fe- pieces of feedback I have received is some folks are not stoked that I'm not rating the noodles. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. Saying, I actually saw that on your post today. There was another comment about that. Yeah. Yeah. Friend of the pod, Evan Lovett of LA in a minute actually asked, are you going to be rating the noodles? Uh, because he enjoyed the way I rated the sandwiches. I'm not saying I'm having second thoughts, but do you still think I'm doing the right thing by not rating? Look, I, I, I think you are by not rating, but something that we touched on was, is there some other way to quantify the experience? Not like, rating in terms of quality or, 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 you know, the fillings are X and the toppings are X, but you did have a category around personal experience when you did the sandwich countdown. And maybe it's more of like a, just a reflection or some way to talk about, you know, uniqueness, personal experience, something along those lines. But I, I don't know. I don't think you need to force it. Look, the, the numbers, the reason why people do food lists, which we talk about a lot, 
are is because there's something grabby about ranking and like mm-hmm. rating stuff. But like I said, this this is a, a, a learning year and a learning posture for you. And it kind of feels weird for you to be like, hey, I just learned about these Thai noodles. Anyway, here's here's the number about them. Right. There's yeah. something a little off about that. But like I like I mentioned, if there's some way to say like, hey, if you want to learn about XXX or something, something <laughs> going to this experience or here's how pleasurable it was for me and from my from my side. Sure, but don't force it. And I think yeah. I think right now the posture is correct. And maybe at the end of the year, instead of like the top ten pastrami sandwiches, it's the the mo the, the noodles I learned the most about or about something along those lines, the most interesting new experiences I had with noodles, which is a little bit different. Well, you bring up a good point that there is still that subjective element because even though I'm learning about all these noodle dishes, there are some that just hit more than others. You know what I mean? Like sure. even if they are like the best possible version of say boat noodles or of pancit, like I had uh, Filipino food just last week, some just like scratch that itch for me more than others. Do you think it's cheating for me to like every so often put out a ranking of like the five best so far or something like that? I, I, I don't think it's cheating. I think it, I, I don't think it's like I, for example, you've done this uh, five best things I ate this week videos, which I'm really enjoying, by the way. I think those are really cool. Uh, and it's kind of maybe something along those lines. Like it's like hmm. the Luca pleasure rankings that you could do. <laughs> <laughs> how, how aroused am I by this noodle? You could say, and then and just do it much more personally, but yet while indicating how, how much your itch was scratched, so to speak. Yeah. This is going to get censored by social media platforms so fast. It's not even funny. <laughs> Well, look, while we're talking about subjectivity and people's personal preferences, that seems like a perfect segue to talk about some of the news that broke this week, which is the announcement of the James Beard semifinalists. Did you catch this, Saul? Of course I caught it, man. This this is our number one topic on this podcast, Food Awards. Yeah, yeah. Food Awards is true. We love it. Now, uh, Los Angeles did pretty well as far as semifinalists goes. 19 Los Angeles area restaurants received semifinalist nods. And that includes a restaurant in Anaheim as well. So if you're seeing some reporting on like 18 nods as opposed to 19 nods, that's most likely what it's about. But this is a pretty good haul. Last year, Los Angeles received 20 semifinalist nods. But this year, two Los Angeles chefs were up for Outstanding Chef, um, Jeremy Fox and Rashida Holmes of uh, Bridgetown Roadie. So all in all, I'd say it's pretty much much for muchness. What are your overall impressions of the selections? Uh, pre- pretty interesting. So I feel like, again, there, there's something about the philosophy of, of the James Beard in terms of how they rank year over year, right? That, that I need to learn more about. Where, so for example... Just because you're a semifinalist this year doesn't mean you weren't last year or the year before or the year before that. Um, and, and I do wonder kind of how those trends change over time. You can almost imagine a graph of like L.A. restaurants and like when they appear and don't appear on, on these particular lists and how far along they get from semifinalist to finalist to winner. Um, something that stood out about this year's list is I think the the the, the primacy of uh, – more more internationally diverse and ethnically diverse cuisines versus your typical French, California, you know, Italian places uh, that that I think have maybe even ten years ago, five years ago, dominated a, a nomination list like this. It seems like there's much more focus, um, just based on what I'm seeing here, on you know the like love to eat. Our old mm-hmm. lunch standby 
is yeah. on this list, right? And 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 others. So uh, I, that's what my initial impression was. Yeah. So good, like cultural diversity, basically, um, is what you're saying. But I think what you're getting at too is it's also diversity of the type of establishment. It's not so yeah. much, not all like fancy restaurants. Fine dining. Exactly. Yep. White tablecloth. I mean, Poncho's Tlayudas is a semifinalist for um, for uh, the uh, Best Chef California category. And mm-hmm. that's just a stand, I'm pretty sure. So, um, I mean, from that sense, yes, it's a pretty cool level of diversity. Let's talk quickly about Best Chef California because that's really where Los Angeles shows up. And there were a lot of Los Angeles uh, representation, as you might expect. Diego Argotti of Poltergeist um, getting getting a, a, a semifinalist nod. Uh, Chef Lord Maynard Yera of Cuya Lord also. Pancho Slayudas, as I mentioned. Um, I think overall nine or so Los Angeles shouts uh, appeared on the Best Chef California section. Anything stick out to you about these? And do you think any of these have a shot at winning? Uh, well, I hope so. I, I, I mean, obviously, our friend Diego, who uh, shout out to him, congratulations, and also sending well wishes for uh, a diff- both difficult and a, a celebratory week in, in a crazy way for him. So thoughts are with him. I'm sure he's probably not listening to this, but um, just want to want to say that. Of course, I hope Diego wins. Right? It's almost like a too rapid of a meteoric rise, you might say, to for him to go from you know opening up Poltergeist and then bam, he's he's a James Reed Award winner. But that'd be super cool. Um, look, I I don't I'm gonna be honest. I don't know if I I feel what's interesting about this list, right? Let's say compare this to the LA Times 101. Mm-hmm. Um, even I, who haven't hasn't lived in LA for you know six seven years now looks at the LA Times 101 and there's so much familiarity within it, right? There's certainly new, but there's so much familiarity. This list of James Beard Award semifinalists is actually like pretty unfamiliar to me. My mm-hmm. two cents, um, Kuya Lord, which I was posted on the LA Countdown today, if I'm remembering correctly, and, and Amatoli, I don't, I don't know these spots. Uh, best New Restaurant, Barra Santos, which is uh, uh, Best New na- Restaurant Nationally, Barra Santos in Los Angeles, I haven't even heard of that, which is cool, right? That's really, really interesting. But I also am like, hey, the awards are doing their job, possibly by, you know, someone who, yes, is you know, tertiary familiarity overall, given I don't live in the city. But I'm looking at the list being like, oh, there are spots that I have not tried that are being not like recognized by this national body. I need to go yeah. check out. So aside from Poltergeist, I really don't have too much to say in terms of who should or shouldn't win. But I do have plenty to say in terms of, oh, this is doing the job that we talked about way back when we started this podcast of elevating spots I would not have been aware of otherwise. Uh, I think that's a great point. Now, I wanted to quickly touch on a point you kind of raised, which is, you know, Poltergeist opened last year. It was on the Mm -hmm. list of best new restaurants for Esquire, I believe, best new restaurants in the country. Um, And so I was kind of expecting Diego to perhaps make an appearance in the emerging chef category. but. He got the nod for Best Chef California. Do you think he's flying to the sun a little too quick, if that makes sense? <laughs> no, no, no. I, but but well, you, you bring up a good point in that this the, the categories for James Beard and uh, the qualifications under each category, they remind me of like the Golden Globes a little, where like uh, the bear is like a comedy and like Barry uh, is mm-hmm. a comedy like, like the categories are like so overlapping and weird where i'm like what's the difference between you know uh 
emerging chef, uh, Daniel Duranzeca and Alessandro Zeca for Amigo Amore and Diego for Poltergeist or any of the other emerging California. Is it just like, hey, the ones that are national hit like a different level of quality or like, uh, like, is there, are there tiers to this? What determines who fits into which category for uh, the, the regional versus national awards? Yeah. Well, you know what's really funny about that is that Danielle Duranzica, former LA Food Podcast as well, actually, uh, from Amiga mm. More, their concept is older than Poltergeist. Like Amiga right. More's brick and mortar also it was established last year, but they've been serving their food via pop-ups and various events, I want to say since 2021. Like like it's right. it's not necessarily a new concept. Um and, you know, Chef Zika has been cooking. She cooked at Union uh, in Pasadena, a famous pasta restaurant for a while. And so, mm. you know, it, it kind of does raise this question. It's like, you know, what 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 are the sort of like um, what does each category actually stand for? And maybe it right. doesn't matter. Maybe 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 to your point, it's like, let's just give everybody the best chance of winning um, and, and that's OK. But, it, it, you know when you start to like dissect it with a knife or however you dissect things, these questions do come up. Yeah. I mean, look, it all goes back to the fact that ranking restaurants and really any kind of art is kind of stupid, but I, <laughs> but what, what's good to see is, is as much recognition as possible, but like in terms of overall notoriety, does being a final uh, semi-finalist in best emerging chef nationally mean more than being a finalist or winner for best chef California? I don't know. I don't think I care. What I care about is seeing the overall list of people who are being recognized and considered for, uh, or, or, or whose pro- profiles are being raised for consideration by this uh, awards body. That's cool. Like I said, the, the learning opportunity is cool. The way they actually break this down in terms of a, the, the science of the awards may not make much sense. Um, and, and it's cool. I mean, look, even getting to this point of being a semifinalist is so uh, notable, right? It's really, really cool to see the, the, like I said, the breadth of restaurants on this list. The attempts, it seems like, by James Beard to diversify and expand um, the, the sort of cuisines and types of establishments that they're considering for these awards, um, which I think has been in process for a few years. But I mean, just uh, it struck me looking at this particular list. And yeah, I'm excited to see what happens next. Um, and shout out to all our, all our friends on on this list who have been on been on the pod and who are in consideration. Did you take a peek at uh, any sort of the Pacific Northwest nods? Are you happy with those? I took a peek and it had similar similar experience. There were some like Communion, uh, the chef at Communion Seattle, which is a a southern restaurant, was and was recognized. Um, and, and a few others. I should go back and refamiliarize myself with it. Archipelago, which is a uh, like a t- uh, chef's table tasting menu, I believe Filipino Northwest restaurant, which I've actually mm-hmm. wanted to check out for a long time in, in South Sea uh, in Hillman City. Uh, it was on a list again. I've seen them there before, but but I think overall similar. Where I'm like, oh, I don't know some of these spots. That's cool, uh, and I'll, I'll check them out. I think I, to be fair, I think the past couple of years, a semifinalist for James Beard have has fit that profile of like, oh, I haven't. I'm surprised that that's the spot that that they chose. And it's almost like they're doing making an effort to skirt the obvious and uh, and like identify the either more emerging or, you know, particularly like the, the restaurants that are at their peak, so to speak. Yeah. the I, Yeah. It's it, the restaurants who are sort of like 
representing what it means to be cooking well in Los Angeles or whatever city right now, which, yeah, yeah. I think is a commendable way to do things. Now, um, I ask you once more, picking up on what we talked about last year, do we care about these awards? <laughs> I Look, I find that I increasingly do. And maybe that's a function of us doing this podcast and talking about food with much more formality and regularity than we did in the past. I remember we were pretty flippant and cynical about about this process when we started talking. And I think there are still reasons to be, to be clear. I, I like to the very point we're making around what are these categories? What do they mean? Who decides them? Um, even if, as we're seeing greater diversity represented here, um, what does it mean year over year to be included as a semifinalist, right? Like what, what, what are we really trying to evaluate? Um, I think there's still plenty of flaws, but I do think I, I care just from an educational standpoint, from an awareness standpoint. Um, and certainly, I mean, I, I always ask myself, like, who was the last cut and why, right? I mean, like, who, who are these, like, the, the folks around the cusp and um, the, the folks we're not learning about is, like, kind of the, the curiosity. But, no, I, from, from the fundamental question of do I care, I think I do care. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am curious about this. And it's cool to overlay, like, the best of end of year list that we talked about with the James Beard Awards and see how it'll for, uh, like further shape the landscape of uh, what's considered great food in Los Angeles and beyond. You heard it here first, folks. Father Saul cares about the James Beard Awards. We did it. We convinced him. Um, <laughs> not that that was necessarily uh, my remit to convince him, but here we are. You know who does care about these awards? It's Bill Esparza of Eater. Um, he's he's a great journalist. He's done a lot of good work, uh, not just in the recent path, path, past, but for a very long time. He posted a story that kind of seemed to take credit for Poncho's Tlayuda's nomination um, as as a, a part of the James Beard semifinalist Emerging Chef California. He basically like posted uh, the article that showed him um, basically like quote unquote breaking news on Poncho's Tlayuda for the first time and saying like the article that launched a thousand awards or something like that. And um he has a bit of a tendency to do this. He's like, you know, often talked about his quote unquote fines and been very defensive of his fines. And part of me gets it. It's like, okay, you do the, you're doing the work, you're going out there, you're like um, getting there early in the morning sometimes or right when they open or, you know, taking chances on a bunch of places that maybe aren't good to find the one place that is good. But I do think the ownership is a little strange. Like I feel like once you find it, it's no longer yours, right? It's like let's like you, you might quote unquote find it, but it doesn't belong to you. That's that's maybe I'm wrong about this, but that's how it actually like hits me when I see something like that. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I, I get where you're coming from, but I think it's, I, I I think I I think I, I guess I disagree to an extent. Right? Look. It, it feels weird from the sense of you don't want to draw attention away from the work of the restaurant. However, the job of media, as we talked about, this, we talked about this before, the job of food media is is to go out and to identify uh, those spots that no one's been to yet and put them on the map. And I think that's actually like quite, I mean, that is literally probably the most honorable work you could do as a journalist in a city um, versus you know just going to the old standbys or going to a place that's on another list. Uh, I mean, look, this is also how media works, right? Bill Esparza is like the Adrian Wojnarowski of, LA, mm -hmm. LA, of the LA food landscape. These are Esparza bombs, right? That are dropping when he finds <laughs> a new spot. Like, 
look, I, uh, look, it, 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 I, I suppose the the um, reticence is like uh, self promotion, right? No one really, it's not seen as like particularly like a, a graceful trade or whatever. But I don't give a shit. Like Bill did the work. Bill Bill's done work on tacos all over the city. Bill is like a like really on the ground. And yeah, I think if let's imagine if Bill had not gone to Poncho's, maybe they wouldn't be on the map. Maybe they would. Maybe they would. But look, he he's the one who got there and. Uh, and look, we're celebrating them as being recognized now. Self-remote, you're a reporter, do your thing, but uh, I, I think it's deserved. Look, you, you probably have a point there, actually. I mean, especially in this climate where I feel like journalists, and we're going to talk about this, are being asked to like really prove their worth. Um, I guess a little self-promotion isn't bad if, if you're just trying to underline how hard you work and how much value you're bringing. So maybe my criticism is unfair. I, I think it just like initially strikes me as like, yes, him taking credit for the restaurant success. And but you know, really, really he's taking credit for, for him, for him, for the work he did. Right. Like really that's what it is. And, and credit to him for, for um, going out, identifying ponchos, maybe put like you said, putting them on the map and then, you know, launching a bunch more recognition. That's, that's awesome. That's what protects great local restaurants and, and emerging spots that people might not have uh, considered before. I'm in Bill's corner. Let's go, man. Yeah. It sounds like if we are ever lucky enough to have Bill Esparza on the podcast, you, you're going to be the one interviewing him uh, because you've, you've said <laughs> nice things and I've said the mean things. So uh, or maybe we can, we can both interview him and be good cop, bad cop. That could be fun too. <laughs> Why not? Let's try it. Why not? Look, speaking of journalism, turning to a bit of a tougher subject it has been a really tough week for journalism in general. I mean, we've seen tons mm-hmm. of stories about layoffs at all kinds of media publications, but it's hit really close to home as well because the LA Times laid off, I want to say like 94 people. It was going to be 115 people, but the LA Times Guild uh, uh, went on strike and was able to save like 10 or 11 jobs. And um, of course, the food section was also impacted. Uh, there were multiple people who contribute to the food section, um, but that also included someone who I'm pretty sure contributed full time to the food section, and that's Lucas Quan Peterson, who is a name who, if you've been following LA food for the last, I don't know, uh, seven, eight years, you've definitely come across because he's done some excellent reporting. So I got to ask you, what the fuck is going on with the media in general? Uh, that that is a whole other podcast. I think beyond the purview of of our of our scope here. I, look, uh, this is terrible news. Uh, scary for the the media, like journalism industry in particular. Um, from from Sports Illustrated, the Washington Post, um, to the LA Times, uh, Time Magazine. It's it's. Uh, the year has kicked off with a bunch of major layoffs and 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 a sort of scary moment for the the, the industry of journalism writ large. I like I, I have some familiarity on this subject from from my full time job. Um, I all I'll say is like it's is that it's so important to have great local journalism. That like that, that's like it, it, it's so valuable, and I think the the sadness of of this particular of the way market forces have impacted the, the media industry is that there's, I think, a real civic value to having uh, well-funded reporters in a local area. People really, I think, respond to local news. Um, and also national news is often 
quite polarizing and kind of, you know, impacts people's like, you know, fear and reward centers in a way where local media, I think, is more so grounding people in their communities, letting them know about issues that impact their lives and their kitchen tables, um, lets them know about great restaurants. Um, I think what's happening is this kind of, there, there are the, the, the big, the big sort of like, you know, winners, uh, sort of speak with the New York Times and, and others of, of, of print media, digital media. And then there are outlets, even like Eater, I think, uh, I hope at least, and, and The Ringer where uh, you've carved out a very specific niche and, and have like uh, great journalism in a particular area that people who care about it can go to and, and, and value. Um, but there are so many factors that matter like, that are impacting this and the, and the middle is being burrowed out. I think five, five local newspapers are closing on average every two weeks. Wow. And then what, what replaces them is, you know, uh, various, I'd say, like I said, more polarizing outlets instead and, and things that don't teach you necessarily about your backyard. So I, 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 we won't go into like all the problems behind this, but I, I will say uh, sad to see what's happening at the Times. Uh, local journalism is super important. Um, and hopefully um, new models emerge about how, how these places or how this kind of storytelling can be made more sustainable. Like the LA countdown. No, I'm just kidding. Now look, the, the, uh, the, the thing you bring up about like, you know, the ringer, for example, I, I did a little bit of research into even those kinds of media models and to see if those were financially viable. I saw something that said like, I think Bill Simmons said in an interview that what makes the made the ringer profitable was literally just his podcast. Like podcast. his podcast. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, his, his podcast. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Is the one yep. that basically brought them into profitability. And I even looked at like Barstool Sports because I thought maybe, okay, you know, you can say whatever you want about Dave Portnoy, but a lot of people say that one of his saving graces is that he's an excellent businessman and maybe he's cracked the media model. Guess what? millions of dollars in the red, like literally like yeah. horrific business. I One of the Los Angeles Times Guild criticisms towards leadership was that they were, quote unquote, cutting their way to the future without doing enough to actually reimagine the business model, right? Without actually doing enough to think about what can we do to like generate revenue in order to be able to protect local journalism. I mean, that seems like the million dollar, well, billion dollar even question what what needs to happen in order to ensure a more sustainable media business? Are we talking about philanthropy, government intervention, benevolent billionaires, all of the above? Look, it's probably some form of all of the above. And and look, what I feel like what media this is a fundamental like market failure, right? Uh, essentially, uh, I, I believe I'll say that uh, good journalism, good local media, is a general civic good that people respond to. However. And like the the costs, the true costs of paying for the research and reporters and editors and expertise behind it is often higher than people are able to uh, or willing to pay for it on on a on a highly local level, right? There's a tension there where we are losing a public good uh, because it's uh, in a, in a private market, um, and and yeah, there are nonprofit media models, there are uh, mixed media models. Um, there are a lot of people doing great work to try and figure out how to replace uh, good local journalism, often using some mix of advertising, philanthropy, subscription model, and so on and so forth. I still don't think like, like the Texas Tribune was one of the sort of hallmark models of this, um, a, a 
a great uh, uh, nonprofit, I believe, media model in Texas and with great reporting at the state legislature level and really diving in, even they had issues uh, at, near the end of last year. And I believe how to make, did they have to make staff cuts? I shouldn't say that if I'm not sure, but I know they had uh, issues heading into the end of last year, in part because if advertising is part of your revenue pie, that's really shrinking right now because advertisers are pulling back as they expect, you know, tighter economic situations. So if advertising is a part of your revenue and for major national outlets or outlets like New York Times, they are a very significant part of that, that's bad. <laughs> that, that's, that's a, a, it's a pretty dire time for that to be part of your revenue model right now. There are entirely nonprofit outlets that are just subscribers and philanthropy, blah, blah, blah. There, there's not going to be one, I think, one size fits all here. Um, and and, I, and so the answer is, I, I don't know. Um, the Seattle Times, I'll say, has done some really interesting work as both the subscriber, subscriber model, uh, advertising model, and partnering pretty well with philanthropy on what they call community labs to do mm. local reporting. But they're kind of a pioneer there. And I don't know if that model has been replicated very successfully across the country for outlets like the New York, uh, the LA times, but it, it's a, <laughs> we, we are, we are far afield from the LA, <laughs> from the LA food scene right now. I could talk about this for a long time, but it's a, it's a question where you don't quite know the answer to beyond saying, this is a problem. This is something that has value to people and we should figure out how to do well, it. Look, you say, you say we're far afield from the LA, LA food world, but I don't think we are at all, especially considering like how much you time you and I spend scouring LA food journalism and discussing LA food journalism. I mean, honestly, this is a massive loss to the entire conversation, right? Like, or, or the potential of local journalism going away is a massive loss to the entire conversation. And the conversation around food is part of what makes sort of the scene so exciting and so special, right? That's where new ideas are fostered. That's where people are held to account, right? There's been so much like bad restaurant behavior that's been called out by yep. uh, the LA Times. There's been new places that have been found by the LA Times. Like, you know, I mean, think of all the work Jonathan Gold did, right? Like just to just to unearth new spots and and literally like provide like like spur on the economic engine of the city via restaurants. So I think it's very pertinent to what we discuss here on this pod. In fact, it makes me feel a little bad for every time we've been hard on the Times for their reporting. Do you think we should feel bad? Uh, well, no, because it's not a reflection on the times. Actually, it's a reflection on uh, how much uh, how much the publishers and funders of the times are able to invest into the reporting they do. The reason why that we I think one of the earliest things we did was make fun of the times for basically mimicking the infatuations map technology, like visualization and and list making and all that. Look, that that was both a, a move of desperation to try to get like readers the way the infatuation was able to get them. I'm guessing right? it's just speculation uh, to be like, Oh my God, like we need a uh, Jonathan gold has passed. We need a way to reliably get readers. There's a model that's working. We're basically going to copy it. And it's a, a lack therefore of creativity and commitment to uh, funding great research and additional resources into journalism to provide a service that people will be willing to pay uh, an extra dollar for to go read, right? So, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think I think we're being hard necessarily, but um, look, I, I do wonder. Like, I, I don't know Eater's financial situation, right? But they're a great example of an outlet that's like you will get value here if you care about this topic, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if Jonathan Gold was coming up today if he'd be an LA Times reporter or an Eater one. It's right? a great like, question. So it. it 
the athletic in the sports world is a, is an interesting example, right? The athletic essentially, uh, as, as local and regional, uh, newspapers were closing up, the athletic was eating up some of the best talent in local and re- regional sports media to be like, to become like the place. If you want to read about sports and learn about great and have great sports journalism, you go there and they get bought by the New York times. I, I feel like eater is a little bit of like, a, these topic specific, you know, uh, outlets seem to be, uh, a little bit more effective at keeping eyeballs because they speak to a particular interest that folks have. Whereas spots like the uh, LA times, which are broader in general today, if you read the LA times or you used to read the LA times and subscribe, why wouldn't you subscribe to the New York times? Yeah. Right. Like, so I don't know. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. And I mean, I think it's, it's an age old sort of discussion of transitioning a, an old business model that has operated in one way for so long to a new one. And, and it's really hard to do if you're not just like starting over from scratch. You've got so many legacy pieces of it that might not work so well in today's world, but you've still got to make room for them and figure out how they fit in. So because, you know, what you're describing to is, yeah, what, what value does the LA Times have in a world where the New York Times also exists? Well, yes, there's the local piece, but also you've got, you've got to sort of create that value, right? You've sort of like got mm-hmm. to like think yeah. outside the box and create that value. And yep. that just hasn't been happening. Now, look, you mentioned Eater, and I did want to quickly wrap up this this piece of the conversation by talking about uh, or giving flowers to Kelly Dobkin for one of the best stories I've read in a while um, on the gentrification of Melrose Hill. Have you heard of Melrose Hill, Saul? I, well, <laughs> you know, the term Melrose Hill, I actually hadn't really identified with the neighborhood until I'd read this piece, but I'm... So I suppose I have heard of Melrose Hill or at the very least have spent time there. Yeah. Well, I just want to plug it real quick for listeners. I'll be putting it in the show notes. Please check it out. We're not going to discuss it in depth because we had a very similar discussion about the neighborhood Victor Heights, which is right on the edge of Chinatown a couple of months ago. I'll actually post that show also in the show links. Uh, But it's basically a discussion on is there a right way to change the face of a neighborhood? And it does feel like some developers are trying to go about it in ways that actually take into account history and local community. And this could be one of those examples, although one of the things that did raise alarm bells is um, the person in question is the son of Milwaukee Bucks owner, Mark Lazary. So I have a question for you, Saul. What's Mark Lazary's bigger misstep having a failed actor son whose rebound profession is gentrifying a random neighborhood or hiring Doc Rivers? <laughs> uh, I, I, I will. <laughs> I, I'm glad you were able to get this uh, punchline question off. Uh, I wish Doc Rivers and the Milwaukee Bucks all the best. Uh, neither of these are bad situations for, for Mr. Mark Lazary. Uh, and I will say this is a really interesting piece. And, and I, I find a couple things interesting. One, and like I said, we won't go too deep. The fact that Melrose Hill sits between a couple of big neighborhoods and therefore doesn't have like a core community organizing sort of network to make the case or push back against gentrification efforts, plus the consideration of historical preservation that that Mr. Lazary seemed to, seems to have in mind as he's investing in the neighborhood. Both interesting. I reject your question. Uh, <laughs> good luck. Good luck to Doc Rivers. Hopefully my Sixers will see them in the playoffs. Yeah, you just don't want to piss off the uh, newest follower of the LA Countdown, Doc Rivers, which, you know, I, I can appreciate. You don't want to alienate our community. Um, do, you have a shitty, do you have a shitty Yelp review of the week this week, bud? Oh, I have a great one, actually. Oh, let's hear it. Uh, 
So about about a week ago, I think it was last weekend, uh, my <laughs> the, my girlfriend Emily got in a little tiff. It was about like uh, there was like a exchange in the morning. I just woken up, and she like we were planning to do some escape rooms that day, but she wasn't feeling well, and she was like, "Hey, I'm not up to doing the escape rooms," and I was like, just like simply like just like nodding, like basically didn't respond. And then like an hour later, she like was like, "Hey, I'm not up for the doing escape room." I'm like, yeah, I heard you the first time. I, I think I said it in like a not like in just like a neutral way. She took it very offensively. She, she said it was like a, a shutdown. And I felt this was an unjust interpretation of 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 my, you know, response. And so we have an exchange where I'm like, that's not fair. And she was like, that was mean. And I was like, you know what? I gotta walk off. Let's get some space. I gotta go on an errand. I'll see you later. I step out of the apartment in a huff, right? I'm doing, I'm doing a huff walk. We're going to take, take a, like an hour off and come back and discuss it with, with cooler heads. And as soon as I step out the door, I realize I've left my AirPods in the apartment. Oh no. <laughs> now, now uh, this is the, this is the bad boyfriend. This is how petty I am, dude. I walk out. I realize in the hallway, two steps outside, I don't have my AirPods. I am so stubborn that instead of walking back in and being like, my bad. Like take two on the huff uh, on the on the walkout. I'm gonna go grab these. I drove to an Apple store and bought new AirPods. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, I was oh, like, and also I like like righteously too. I was like, you don't get to win this. I'm not walking back here in shame. I'm getting new AirPods. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally, the 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 whole getting space for each other was me going to the Apple store, buying the new AirPods coming back and then it's like immediately like immediately like solving it and it being totally fine <laughs> except i just had like spent 130 bucks on a new pair of headphones for no reason <laughs> that is so petty so yeah. irresponsible says yeah. so much about your character so many worrying yeah. things about your character i'm worried as your, <laughs> i'm worried as your pseudo business partner honestly um i i would say that's that's a one star easily easily a one star oh yeah yeah i mean look they're the 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 exchange itself, the little tiff, really not a big deal in the end, right? Like, but it was just the pure stubbornness, the pure pettiness of being like, "This is how I win." I'm like Adam Sandler in yeah. Uncut Gems, going, "This is how I win." To myself in the mirror by going up and doing all that, and so yeah, that's a solid one. To, oh, we'll do one star. There's we can go lower than that, so we should keep room for a half star. One star review for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think I think because you capped it at 130 bucks, like I think that's why one star any more than we might have had gone down to half star. Um, Emily was like good. flabbergasted. She was like, "You did what?" And I was like, "I'm sorry." Uh, and you win. like fully, fully did not need these AirPods. No, no, I had like literally. Actually, to be honest, I had one AirPod. I just didn't have the other, and I was like, "Oh I want my to, god!" Though. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, I, I'm a stubborn man. Look, it's a great story. Great story. Okay, I, I've got one for you as well. Okay, so um, over the holidays, I we finally watched Barbie. Okay, so Barbie came around last year, and we never got around to watching it. We were always like, "We're gonna go, we're gonna go, we're gonna go." We never went. So finally, we watch it uh, with my wife's parents over the holidays. This is not the uh, shitty Yelp review part, but I, I wasn't crazy about Barbie. We can talk about that another time. But I yeah, feel yeah. like that in and of itself could give me a shitty Yelp review for just not liking the movie. Yeah. But 
Anyway. <laughs> there was one part, I don't know if you recall, but where um, the Kens have taken over Barbie Land or whatever it's called. And yep. they're sort of like showcasing their like toxic masculine behavior. And one of the like trademark toxic masculine behaviors that was on display was watching the godfather was watching the godfather and and basically like um ex- explaining it the entire way through right <laughs> i've many, forgotten this detail yeah many would look at this and think okay whatever the kens are doing in this toxic masculinity like montage are things i should not do me on the other hand i was like you know what i've never really seen the godfather <laughs> <laughs> So cut to like a, like a, a week ago and my wife stops me and says, hey, have you been watching like The Godfather 15 minutes at a time early in the morning before I wake up? And yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been slowly catching up on The Godfather 15 minutes at a time each morning. It's a long ass movie, okay? But if you turn it into 15 minute, it becomes like an eight part miniseries, okay? So um that's what I've been doing. I saw, I saw basically like the red flag of don't do this. And I was like, you know what? I need to do this. I, I think the worst part of this though is watching the Godfather in that fashion. That's like not the way that movie's supposed to be consumed. You need to sit down and take the whole thing in 15 minute increments of the Godfather. It's not a Netflix series. What I'll, are you I'll doing? Be I'll be honest. I still haven't finished. Um, but Jesus. like, <laughs> But like, but like, actually, you know what? It it actually like works surprisingly well because of the beats in the movie. I think actually maybe 15 is too little, but if you did it in 30 minute episodes, you would get enough in that 30 minutes to feel like you've watched something significant. I think Sean Fennessy is like, if Sean Fennessy were to ever listen to this podcast, which would be my dream, he'd be like apoplectic right now. This is not right. (laughs) Just watch The Godfather. Here, come over, watch The Godfather with me. I'll explain it to you while we watch. While we watch it with our two pairs of AirPods, which you now have. <laughs> ah, perfect. All right. Hey, uh, quick question for you. How do you feel about Vietnamese food? Ooh. I ambivalent, to be honest. I don't mean to be like hot takey here. <laughs> Wait, do you have a guest coming on who does Vietnamese food? I, I sure I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm not a big fun guy. I, I just like, it's it's not my... I, I'm so excited for you to hear learn more about Vietnamese food, delicious cuisine. I have no questions. Yeah, good enough. Good enough for me. We'll be right back <laughs> with Tracy and Chad Davis of Me Like Kitchen oh right after the break. God. <laughs> Joining us today on the LA Food Podcast, it's the owners of Vietnamese fast casual concept, Me Like Kitchen, Tracy and Chad Davis. Tracy, Chad, how are you doing today? Oh. Very good, doing great. Good to hear. Where are you calling us from? What What's your LA neck of the woods? So we are at home right now in our um, in View Park, View Park Windsor Hills, which is near Baldwin mm-hmm. Hills. A lot of people don't know exactly where that is. So sort of the center of the city. That's awesome. What's uh What kind of restaurants are are local to you? Where What are your sort of neighborhood haunts? So uh, they just opened a Dolan's uh, soul food kitchen, just like maybe, I don't know, two or three blocks from us. Um, Vinny, John and Vinny. John and Vinny's on Slauson is right down the street from us as well. Uh, Serving Spoon actually just got named like Essential 38 on Eater, on, their, on the Eater list. It's wow. a breakfast spot. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, Sunday there's gravy. a kind of Sunday gravy. Um, mm. That's a, one of our faves as well, mm-hmm. right down the street from us. So. That's awesome. Is there is there like pretty good hiking around there too, if I'm not mistaken, or that's more around Culver City? Is that am I, am I getting mixed up? No, I mean, so we're about ten minutes from Culver City, if even that. I mean, that's probably with traffic. And so, what five minutes from us is a uh, like the Kenneth Hahn, you know, hiking center. Mm. I don't it's called it's a huge park Mm -hmm. and then probably about 10 minutes from us is the culver city stairs um and 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 another park that's right there as well wow so a hub of activity in terms of physical activity and then plenty of places to refuel afterwards it feels like and we're about a mile away from the new stadium the sofi stadium stadium. where the rams play and uh, there's a new clipper stadium as well yeah going right there as well and they just got the All-Star game in 2026. So you're going to have a bunch of activity near you. Yes, yes, yes. So we, we've been trying to figure out, you know, we've always, you know, because we're in this neighborhood, we've been here for about, what, five years now? Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of one of the, this is one of the areas that we also want to, you know, open up a neighborhood something in, uh, kind of grow with this neighborhood as we have grown with it. And, um, so yeah, we, we haven't found the perfect location yet, but that's definitely, we want to do sort of a fun neighborhood restaurant here, sort of like uh, the Belmont is pretty popular. So kind of like that, but for this neighborhood. So So. a a departure for Milai, you might say. Um, in addition. In addition, yeah. In, in addition. addition, okay. I just want to see if we're are we breaking news here. You know, we don't often break news on the LA Food Pod, but hey, we're happy to. So, uh, you heard it here f- first, folks. Well, great to hear about the LA stomping grounds, but I understand that this story also starts kind of in in a different part of the United States, and that's Houston, Tracy. That's where you grew up. Am I am I right? Yeah, that is where I'm from. Uh, I was born in Georgia, but I was raised in Houston. Went to high, you know, went to middle school there, high school. Uh, went to University of Houston, um, and uh, yeah, I've been there. You know, I was there until I was like 22 years old before I moved to New York City. Well, it sounds like food uh, from from what I've read about you. It sounds like food played a central part in your upbringing. What was your relationship to food growing up? So yes, uh, being a you know an Asian family or Vietnamese family specifically, food is sort of at the center and of the core of of our family, right? It's like I don't know. I'm sure you've seen a lot of uh, memes and reels and things like that where it's like, oh Tracy, you're too fat, but here you need to eat, or like you know, <laughs> or it's like you know you have to eat every grain or kernel of rice otherwise the maggots are going to eat you when you die like you know so like food is like central to all of our you know to our life and you know that's where we gather and you know my grandmother would used to make pho all the whole family all my aunts and uncles and my cousins would come over and eat pho together um every single night my mom cooked although my mom really does not like cooking she's actually a very great cook um, she would make all of us come home and eat dinner and talk about our days. And so like food is always very central in my life. Yeah. I mean, honestly, what you just described, Hey, you're getting fat, but you have to eat. That's exactly what it was like to grow up in an Italian household as well. So I can absolutely relate to that. Shad, what part of this, uh, what, what part of the United States are you from? I'm from, uh, Kennebunkport, Maine. It's a small town in, uh, Southern Maine, um, coastal. 
And uh, yeah, um, lobster is our big uh, claim to fame over there. Just everything lobster, lobster rolls, fresh lobster. Uh, yes, but he's what he's not saying is that his mom and his, so his dad is a farmer and his mm. mom is in, she's um, a vegetarian or she's like pescatarian, but she is an excellent cook. Mm. Uh, she mm. eat everything, and so he uh, she owned a bakery for what like thirty five years or yep. something of his life, and she just recently sold it. And so um, food is also super central in his life as well. Mm. Yep. So you grew up in and around the kitchen. I think they had kids, so they had free labor. <laughs> like, were you into that, or did you resent it? Uh, no, it was it was a good pastime. I, you know, obviously worked in restaurants when I was younger, and kind of like uh, fell in love with the kitchen. I, one of my um, the owners uh, was a chef as well, and he kind of put me on the. Uh, salad station which moved into the you know hotline and blah 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 and then you just kind of went from there and started cooking you know and it kind of just fell in place was it the kind of thing where you just like woke up one day and you were like holy shit i've been in the kitchen for like 15 years or or was there a moment where you were like actually i do want to do this as a career um yeah it kind of just molded into i think i wanted to be a professional snowboarder actually but that didn't work okay <laughs> and uh and then so I went to culinary school in Vermont and uh moved around the country working for fancy chefs and ended up in Los Angeles and met, met Tracy along the way and here we are. What happened to the snowboarding dream? I was not good enough. Just let's just be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I and that fell flat and my parents said come home go to school or you can stay out there and you're on your own. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I like, feel that. I that 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 was me in soccer too, and you know what? There's a, there's definitely a point in your life when your dad stops showing up to your games, and you're like, "Holy shit, I must not be very good at this." Uh, but uh, Tracy, from what I understand, you went the corporate route in terms of career. What did you end up doing, and uh, how did you land there? So um, after school, I um, moved to New York City, and or I moved to Manhattan, and uh, my friend, my girlfriend, had just started working for a, a bank out there. And uh, I was like, oh, I can do this. Like, I'm tough. I'm smart. I can I can do this. And so I got a job at uh, UBS, actually, and Bear Stearns um, on the like as a trading floor assistant and um, quickly realized that like that is not the existence I want for the next. I don't know, like however long I'm going to be alive, 50, 60 years And, um, although, you know, pay is good and, you know, I just, it was so miserable. I mean, I've seen so many flip outs on the trading floor. Uh, but the good thing is that, you know, it did prepare me a lot in life, right? Like I, you know, I'm super on time. I'm very vigilant. I'm, I am like pretty type A and I'm tough. I'm super tough. Um, and part of that training was being on the trading floor and having people yell at you or talk down to you, or at least think that they can, and, you know, having to know that you can defend yourself and building up that self-esteem. So, yeah, then I uh, moved to <laughs> What I wouldn't give to hear your story of the most epic flip out you saw on the trading floor. Uh, literally, okay, probably the one of the most epic, I don't know if it's the most epic, but literally I got a trader when he was having a really bad day, start, gets up, starts shouting, Literally, okay, so like we have walls and it's just all, all all monitors. Like each one of us has like two or three or four. 
he took a monitor, ripped it out of the wall, slams it on the ground, picks, takes another one, rips it out of the wall again, slams it on the ground and like by an, and then like rips the telephone slam and then just like walks off. And we're all like, wow. Okay. Like I, I still even remember his name. That's how like, it, 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 <laughs> and I was like, that was kind of awesome and scary all at the same time. You can't yeah. see my face now, dear listener, but uh, my face is in shock. I, the thing that shocks me about that story is that he did the first monitor and was like, you yeah. know what? That wasn't good enough. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah. the most, that's the most sort of like uh, gobsmacking thing about that story. Um, well, yeah. I'm glad you got out of there and I'm glad you, it taught you some lessons for what you do today. Um, at what point did your two paths cross? Um, so probably in like 2012 or 2013, uh, our friend Fred, who you corresponded with, he, we're, uh, both mutual friends of his and as well as a, a few other people. And, uh, we kind of started hanging out, met and, um, started, you know, kind of liked each other, started dating for, we dated for maybe about like six months or so. And then due to timing. Uh, it didn't work out at that, at that moment. And we, he stopped speaking to me, actually. He just, um, just hard shut me out. Ghosted Cut me. Yeah. Damn, ice yeah. cold. I, he's There's ice cold. more story than that, but. Yeah. <laughs> like the end of 2016, I think it was, or 2017, I can't remember. Uh, we got back in communication. She came to my birthday at Sizzler. Yes. Whoa, so. was she was she invited or was this a stalking situation? Was uh, uh, I'm coming. It was right down the street from her apartment. She said, "I'm coming to Sizzler with you guys." Yeah. And I said, "Oh boy." Okay. <laughs> I I called and wished him a happy birthday, and uh, I said, "Oh, what are you doing?" Just casually, you know. And uh, he said, "Oh, I'm going to Sizzler." So, uh, in in Maine or in Kenny Bunkport, in his town, there's not a lot of chain restaurants. Of course, there's McDonald's and like Burger King, but like there's not like Applebee's or Chili's or things like that. Big change Big for the chains. most part. No, in Maine, there wasn't a lot when I was growing up. So um, for what he, he's that year, he started this thing where it's like, okay, like these restaurants that people grow up going to like Cheesecake Factory or Olive Garden, he never got yeah. to go to. So it's become like a yearly thing where on his birthday, instead of going to like, you know, whatever girl in the goat, we go to um you know red lobster olive garden so that year was the first year he did it and he was like scissor and i'm like you know what i'm gonna come and say hi mm -hmm. and so i, I just pushed my way i fucking love that i just have <laughs> to say that is an epic way to do your birthday what is the what is the one restaurant shad that's like really sort of like spoken to you out of all these big chain restaurants have you had a moment where you're like god if only i had olive garden growing up <laughs> i tell you i mean the salad we go once in a while just for the all you can eat salad you know it's hilarious um i don't know i mean what is it? i don't know i mean there, a lot of them are pretty good you know overall like uh, tony romas was pretty yummy yeah. um you know mm. I, I don't know i mean he, it, he I, I feel like you liked chilies a lot and then you came home and got heartburn and then you're like i'm never going there again. oh yeah that place was this That's like part of the experience, you know. You, yeah. you you pay for the meal, and but they throw in the heartburn for free. 
Yeah. They should put some, you know, tubs in there yeah. to go there. Yeah. But yeah, this girl <laughs> loves to go to every fancy inflection restaurant. That's true. I go to Hilo. I will eat street cart food or street food, and then, but I do love, you know. But we're not going to Tony Bromas anytime soon. Well, no, so we're not going to Tony. But Tracy, are you like you're you're high low? But like, are you one of those people that needs to go to restaurants that have been like quote unquote approved? You know what I mean? Like that are like you 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 know that they're like good because you've seen them on like lists and seen them like you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say so, just because. Uh, and then you know, there's that whole moment of I kind of like for the restaurant to be open for two or three months before I go because. A lot of times when you they first open, there's a lot of things that go wrong and you don't I don't think you get the full experience. And I think mm-hmm. there's very few restaurants where you they open and it was like just good just right from the start. But um yes, I do like for it to be proven a little bit. And you know, a lot of times I still go and I'm like, wow, like this has gotten written up this many times, I don't really get it. Or, you know, or there's this restaurant, it has barely gotten written up. I think it it needs a lot more publicity or fame. So I would love to hear you dish on the former, the restaurants that you're like, I can't believe it's been written up this much, but I won't ask you to do that. But are there any, are there any restaurants that you on in the latter category of, Hey, I think this deserves a lot more hype than it's currently getting. Okay. So one of the restaurants I eat at all the time and, um, is Hoi Ka Thai restaurant. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. of it. So, yeah. You know, Jitlada obviously gets written up all the time. Um, the Sap Coffee Shop or Coffee Company gets written up all the time. But like Hoi Ka, I've been eating at almost since the beginning, since I moved over here for like 16, 17 years now. And it's so good. And it's just, it's always consistent. And I just, I love that place. I what I tell everyone about that place, I love it. I absolutely love it. So that's one of my favorite all-time go-to spots. Um, I love that. Yeah. Is there another spot that you can think of? I'm off the top of my head. Plant. Okay, so we just recently oh. started going to Planta Cocina. Um, it's oh. plant-based. Uh-huh. It's really good. It's plant-based. Yeah. Mind-blowingly good. I think there's about, like, I want to say eight locations or so. Um, one just opened up in Miranda Del Rey, and that's the one we discovered. It is so good. It, I mean, the drinks are good. The vibe, the scene is great. The food is excellent. And we're not, you know, vegan or, or even vegetarian for that matter. And we've gone several times just because we like it that much. So that's wow, another okay. spot not getting any recognition on i haven't seen it on eater or anywhere so and i love it no i i love Mm -hmm. that those are two great shouts because one is like the old school you know the sort of like underappreciated old school one is sort of the underappreciated new school um i love it so let's talk about milai so i understand that uh it sounds like maybe the idea for milai was yours to start tracy i'm curious how did it spring up how did you get this idea um, so, you know, I, we've already shared that I have a great love of food and restaurants. I would say that, um, you know, back a few years ago, I don't know, maybe I, I can't even think of it, but it was six around, or seven years ago, around when Sweet Fin started popping up, Kava started mm-hmm. popping up, 
Um, so zoom, a lot zoom. of zoom, zoom, a lot of those build your own bowls spots, you know, started popping up. And of course, like we can't not mention Chipotle, right? Like they're sort of the original. Um, I started seeing like, okay, there's a lot of Mediterranean popping up. There's tons of different poke popping up, but there's really no nothing for, for Asian food in general, right? Like nothing for Thai. I mean, for Chinese, there's Panda Express, but it's not really kind of on that higher caliber or I mean I don't want to say that because like I would love to be a Panda Express family if they're <laughs> but um there it, it's not that like fast casual vibe right yeah it's more and um so I was like why is no one doing this for Asian food and specific you know I'm Vietnamese so I kind of started thinking about like what about my food so when you think about Vietnamese food there's the you know the charcoal the lemongrass charcoal uh, chicken charcoal pork um, and then you sort of eat it, you can eat it on rice noodle, you can eat it on regular rice. You really can, you know, do things, interchange things, right? And um, it, it's not a perfect recipe, but you can. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was like, I think Vietnamese food would be perfect for this kind of healthy build your own bowl. All of our side dishes are like either pickled um, sides, like pickled carrots and daikon, pickled cabbage. Uh, fresh tomatoes, fresh, 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 fresh cucumbers. Um, so it lends itself to be not only very healthy, but gluten-free, which is, you know, everyone in LA is gluten-free these days. And so, um, I just thought, um, it's Vietnamese food is healthy. It really does cover a lot of different dietary restrictions. Um, it can be sort of served interchangeably and, um, no one has done it. So. I started kind of sketching out uh, how I would build it and how I would want it done. So, yeah. So, Shad, at this point, you were had already been working in the industry and you had some experience with, I, I was it the counter uh, and 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 establishments like that that are very well established. When you heard about this idea, what was your thought about it? Well, she was working in uh, the tech company, um, uh, you know, selling a software of some sort and uh, making very good money, working three hours a day, uh, mostly, you know, <laughs> playing, playing selling with... on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go into the office to bring her lunch and they'd be playing checkers and whatever else, uh, not any kind of work's going on. And um, and I've known about the restaurant business for a long time. It's nowhere. It's not fun. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, it's a grind. So when she came up with this, you know, that she wanted to do this, it was, uh, trying to table it as long as we could is the, uh, you know, just, <laughs> oh, yeah, everybody has this dream to own a restaurant, this romantic, um, dream that they have, oh, you know, we'll walk in and everything's going to be going great. And, um, so anyways, we tabled it for a couple of years, as long as we could. And then an opportunity came up and, uh, and, uh, we went after it. So what was yeah. your, what was your hesitation, Chad? What was your sort of like fear? Why weren't you, I, besides the obvious fact that like, yes, restaurants are a tough business. It's way easier to be playing ping pong three hours a day in an office. That sounds like a great life. But did you have any fears that were specific to maybe the concept or even like a fast casual business model? Uh, well, just the overall general being married to somebody that in a business that is this bad is, is generally uh, an end to a relationship. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's literally, 
I know almost nobody that have survived opening up a restaurant, uh, being married. Um, you know, it's it's a tough business, and um, so yeah, I mean that's that would I would wish it on you know I mean hey, we've done it and we made it through COVID and a lot of other uh, you know problems, but it's 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 a grind every day, and uh, you know you're dealing with employees that um, could care less, <laughs> you know, it's a Joe job to them and it's our life. So it's, uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it's getting, it, it goes up and ups and downs every day. You know, some weeks are great. Yeah. Some weeks are just a fire. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, yeah. I can relate to that. My parents own a restaurant and that concept of it's your life. Well, for a lot of people, it's just their, the job they have on that particular day. That's a really tough thing to balance and trying to get those people to care about it as much as you do. That sounds like an impossible task. So my heart goes out to you. Um, now let's talk about fast casual. I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of fast casual, this business model specifically from the perspective of going out and setting out to start a new restaurant. How is planning for a fast casual concept and a fast casual menu different from opening a traditional restaurant operation? It's similar in the ways that um, that you have to you know do everything as efficient and um, cost effective as possible. Um, I think maybe the larger differences I've kind of thought about this a little bit is is the is that you're doing everything right out front instead of back in, in back of a kitchen, uh, you're kind of in a, um, in a fishbowl, uh, if you will. And, um, so everything has to be super clean, super hygienic. Uh, you have the nuttiest people, um, you know, looking after every move that you're making and judging you. Um, and so, you know, definitely there's a lot of thought that needs to go into how you're going to, make this dish right in front of somebody and um and do it super efficiently and beautifully and be able to ring them up and not have any kind of issues um versus yeah. a regular restaurant where most things are done in the back um and then a plate is given to you uh with all the food prepared or a box or whatever and it's done and i guess that's what i would, yeah. I would say i would i would just add that um because everything is right in front right and like in a the space in a fast casual restaurant usually is going to be a lot smaller we don't need three thousand square feet right like we are fine with just like at mar vista it's really only a thousand and then at sunset it's about uh 14 to 1500 but all mm -hmm. that space is in the front so um you know just kind of play thinking through placement of every little thing so that like one or max two people can really access and guide the customer through the line and or make whatever bowl there is and so um i think that is um that is a little bit of the challenge but also you know as he said uh, because you're in a fishbowl um you know just everyone is sitting there judging every little thing that you do so mm -hmm. that is that can be difficult. If you don't change your gloves between doing this and doing that, da, 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 you you might hear about it on a Yelp review or a yeah. Google review or something. And everything is, you know, all of our services are bleached and, and yeah. sanitized, right? But like they don't know that. However, they go to the next restaurant. Those people aren't even using gloves, but they don't 
maybe they take a peek or they or they're not sure whatever it is and then but there's no judgment there um yeah the other thing would be the menu right like i think another benefit and what we started seeing as you know as restaurants and fast casual business that's kind of move forward is that the shortening um or the you know of menus um that has you know worked out really well for us because people are kind of used to being like, okay, this is it. And so although there's still a lot of options uh, because you can build your own bowl, we really only of our kind of main or what we call our favorites, we really only have about five or six favorites and mm-hmm. everyone's okay with that, you know? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I typically don't ever order from the favorites at a place like Milai because I, the, the, the personalization is so much fun. I did happen to order one of your guys's favorites last time I went and it was bomb. It was the uh, vermicelli with the pork um, and the spring roll. Absolutely loved it. Um, But yeah, what you're describing, it sounds like, yeah, the challenge is there's nowhere to hide, right? It's like everything you're doing is, is out front. I'm curious, are there any specific examples of like little things you had to like solve for along the way? Some like, problems you identified early and you like adjustments you had to make in order to accommodate this model? Oh my gosh. I mean, so I think we can talk about Mar Vista because Mar Vista was actually a, uh, an ice cream shop prior hmm. to going in there. And so, um, we, that already was an adjustment of like, how are we going to, um, you know, it started small, right? Because we opened one month before COVID. So that sort of quickly changed everything. But um, as we grew, we had to figure out, okay, like now we have to make 40, 60, 80 pounds of chicken, for example. Um, Mm. And then how do we get it there? How do we warm it up? How do we cook it so that it's crisp and fresh and it's caramelized and it tastes the way it is. So uh, one of those things that we, one of those machines that we, not discovered, I guess, but we bought and sort of discovered, I guess, is, is a, a turbo chef. And mm. the turbo chef. Hey, is, Starbucks, have you ever seen the machine that heats up your um, your biscuit or your, your uh, yeah. bacon or whatever? That's a fast, a quick, quick, uh, what is it called? A quick uh, rapid oven or rapid oven. Mm-hmm. It utilizes microwave and convection mm-hmm. and it cooks a meat. You dial it into whatever you wanted to cook, and we've like kind of figured yeah. out that. So we toast our bread in it. We we um cook or we warm up and you know caramelize our meats in it. Um, we cook our we bake our you know uh, vegan meatballs in it. So it's like we discovered this amazing machine, and it is very pricey, but um it's it's a machine where we can do everything. So we've had to do like, that's one of the things we had to kind of dial dial, dial down, dial into. Um, another thing is, uh, so we have a seasonal item every single, um, uh, season, uh, but pho, we sort of keep on for two seasons. That was another thing. So like, how do we warm up the pho? So it's like these constant little, so at sunset, we have a stove, we have a hood, we have all of that stuff. But at Mar Vista, where this was our kind of guinea pig, how do we do that? So, okay, you know, get, get an induction <laughs> burner, put it on there, you know. And we uh, we also bought a um, a hot water machine to quickly warm up, pour the hot water onto the noodles, grab to take the, you know, to, to lift the noodles out of the, the strainer. And so we really for Mervista, we really had, we've had to be very inventive. 
And then like a yeah. stupid problem, like the air condition blowing on, we had to buy a bread box for it. It's like, so these are, there's lots of little things that just kind of pop up that we yeah. are constantly problem solving for. That's fascinating. I mean, the pho thing, I never even thought of like how difficult it would be to deliver pho in a fast casual setting. I've, I've seen when I was growing up in Switzerland, there was this really popular Italian fast casual concept, but looking back on it, it was horrible because like, you know, boiling pasta, it's not, it's not fast. Like it's not, it's not fast enough basically. Um, and, and I think maybe part of the issue is they just hadn't quite solved how to do it. But yeah, it sounds like you need like a logistics degree uh, in order to solve some of these issues or like yourselves, just, you know, rely on some pretty awesome ingenuity. A lot of trial and error. A lot of trial and error. Seriously. Um, Let's talk about specific menu items. Were there any menu items that it was important for you to see reflected in Milai's menu just from the outset? You're like, we just got to do this. It's an important menu item to me. So uh, the egg rolls that you were just talking about, this whole thing sort of almost started because of the egg roll. So in mm. Houston, um, we, like every single family event or even at restaurants, you get these perfectly cooked, like beautiful egg rolls with stuff full of meat and, um, you know, less filler, like less of the jicama, less of the carrots and all this stuff, but just lots of meat. And over here, I noticed that um, it was the opposite. It was all so much more filler, little skinny things. And, um, and I was like, what's going on here? Egg rolls are my absolute favorite. Like I love fried food. I'm from Texas and I can't <laughs> have a decent egg roll. Like, what is this? And so I just thought to myself, like, I should open up some sort of Vietnamese restaurant and just like have proper egg rolls, you know? So that's how it all started. And, um, uh, we st- I started playing around with it. And then the other side of that is are the vegan uh, vegan egg rolls. So most places, Chinese, Thai, and even, you know, the Vietnamese restaurants, there's a lot of jicama and cabbage, uh, carrots, uh, noodles for uh, for the vegan egg rolls. But for us, um, we, uh, we actually put vegan meat. So, you know, impossible meat and or beyond meat. So that's, we put, so I wanted it so that when the, you know, vegans come in and they take that bite that they're actually like, they get a little bit of like what, you know, a pork egg roll would taste like. So that yeah. was a very, very important menu item for me to feature. And then I just also wanted to get right a lot of the side items, like the pickled items that, you know, fully reflect um, Vietnamese cuisine. And um, I would say the last thing is the fish sauce, right? Fish sauce is like integral to the, you know, to Vietnamese cuisine. Um, I also knew that it had to be a flavor that was maybe a little bit more approachable. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did a lot of trial and error where I was like, kind of, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but maybe brightening it up. And so he was my taster mm-hmm. of the, for the, for the fish sauce, which is the Milai vinaigrette. So yeah. There's yeah. Nothing. I hadn't even thought about the uh, the the roll uh, piece and component because yeah, you bring up a great point, which like I've actually noticed that a lot of at a lot of restaurants. And my wife was vegetarian for a long time. When you are looking for a vegetarian option, the only thing they have a lot of time is the fresh rolls. A lot of time, the many establishments don't even have a vegetarian version of the fried rolls. Um, so we were very excited to see that you had the Impossible Meat version over at Milai. 
one thing I really appreciated last time I went to Milai was how like pronounced the smoky and char flavor on the meats is. How do you achieve that in a fast casual concept? Well, we have a production kitchen where we make everything. Um, so everything has been marinated for 24 hours minimum. Um, and then on a massive grill, um, it has been grilled, uh, par cooked, if you will, and then cooled down. Um, and then we bring it to the locations and um, cut, them up, cut them up, warm it up and put it into on the line. So you're getting all that uh, marinated flavor and the smoke from the big grills that we that we utilize to cook everything on. Yeah, What's crazy I- about that is it just tastes like it's fresh off the grill. Like it like literally you would not know that it that it was done beforehand. Like it literally feels like you're getting it at a barbecue fresh off the grill. Yeah, so it was definitely very important for us to make sure that our cooks also know how to warm it up. So like, you know, uh, we I have this, this is one of the quality checks that I do all the time when something is sitting in too much of, you know, if, it, if it's juice, I'm like, all right, take it out or, you know, dump out the juice because when it's being warmed up on the pan or in the turbo chef, like we want it to, we want all that you know, the sugar content or whatever it is mm-hmm. the grill to really come out and to, so that you can taste that caramelization, right? Like that is yeah. the kind of the most important part is the, the smokiness of the grill and the caramelization of the sugar. Awesome stuff. You're doing something right. Cause it, it, it's working for me. Let me just say that speaking a bit more generally, We've seen a lot of fast, casual concepts come and go. We've seen super successful ones like the ones you've already mentioned. We've seen Chipotle. We've seen Cava. And then there's others that have been a little less successful that have come and gone. You know, the one that comes to mind most notably is Shop House to me, which was Chipotle's uh, venture into Southeast Asian food, I believe. What do you think distinguishes the successes from the failures in the fast, casual realm? Sounds like. I mean, I would say it's Tracy's dedication to her flavors and her um, uh, her overall concept. Um, I feel like it, her touch, and she's there at all three of them every almost every single day, um, and making sure that all the the product is um, correct. I mean, I even get scolded once or twice a week. That's not good enough, you know. I felt like shocked. <laughs> Shop house. It was shop house, right? Yeah. Yeah. Shop you know, house. They were really dry. Um, uh, I went to the one on Hollywood Boulevard a few times. Um, and I felt like they didn't keep the quality of the meats and the other products up to par. Um, it maybe it sat there too long. Um, I don't feel like there was the love that Tracy puts into our restaurants. Um, they they obviously did the idea was good, obviously. Um, fast casual, salty, you know, but it just didn't nail it. And that mm-hmm. was my experience because I can't, I think I went three times and the third time I'm like, I don't know. And so I think that's basically in a nutshell, um, the management um, that we hire, the people that we, you know, Tracy's on them all the time. She makes them, uh, you know, take pictures. If, we're, if she's not there, take pictures in text message at almost every other hour. Um, so the dedication to the product is a hundred percent Tracy's. He, he's you know. making me sound like a crazy person. No, but... no, it's, it's, uh, it's what's <laughs> needs to be done. Yeah. 
Um, I would say, yes, at Chipotle, if you want another fast Asian fast casual, please come and hit us up. But no, I'm joking. <laughs> I that there's um, the uh, shop house and the other ones. I think that a lot of times, like when you grow or there's so much like quick growth and there's not like a, 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 a true like standard of procedure written down, uh, people are not trained properly. Um, then that's sort of when you, you start to fail. Right. And it's like, even with me, like as we've grown and, you know, as we've added our third location, um, I've seen, you know, things here or there quality that I have to continue to be on top of. Right. And so that is like one of the reasons why we're very careful about, you know, how we're growing, the the way we're growing, how quickly we're growing. Um, and, you know, cause I still have, I notice if I'm not there, you know, every single day or every other day, or if I'm not on top of them, or if I'm not seeing the pictures, then that, that in two days, quality starts going down. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to grow. And, you know, they, they say that it gets easier as you, you know, as you kind of have this all down, but I I can't even, I'm also so attached to it and so tied to it. I don't even like, as we grow, I don't know how I'm going to spread myself between every single, and that's going to be the difficult part. Like one of the secret ingredients to me, success right now, Tracy is you is, is your love, your care, your attention. How do you scale love, care, and attention as me continues to grow? Um, that is definitely, I would say a very hard question that I think we're both having to think about and deal with right now. Right. Um, I would say that I am, I have been very lucky where I have really, really great employees and, um, it's going to all come down to training, right. Training and treating your employees, right. Building that correct culture, um, and trusting that they are doing what they're supposed to do. However, following up. So um, that is, I think we're, we're sort of testing that equation right now. And um, it's, it's, it's working so far. And um, yeah, that, you know, I'm starting to do things as like writing down standards of practice as well. And um, I think, it is. It's it's going to all come down to trusting your team, training your team, and making sure that they know what they're supposed to do. It's also fundamentals. Fundamentals of the restaurant. Fundamentals of procedures and and making them um, relatively easy to uh, to follow and you know and just overseeing it. And um, I think you know I think if you look at any of the good big restaurants there they have solid fundamentals of a restaurant great procedures um and checks and balances and Mm -hmm. uh, that's just basically you know any good restaurant that's what they got you know there's a procedure for literally everything you know you've mentioned that there may be some other concepts in the works doesn't sound like they're fully baked maybe they are maybe you're just not ready to talk about them but are there any you know sneak peeks or 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 kinds of things that are exciting you that you can talk about so we um we want we of of course want to continue to expand milai um we want to 
So I have a lot of family in Houston and lots of people that I trust there. So I think we want to expand out there, maybe a, a couple uh, a out there. Um, we have a sandwich concept that I think we want to put into our ghost kitchen. Um, I won't tell you the name because I haven't trademarked it yet. And it was a really, really fun name, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then as we, you know, as we've talked about, we want to do, you know, he's, um, so he's the original chef of the Belmont, the Counterberg, as you know, and, uh, the federal, which are like these huge names in gastropubs. And, um, so, you know, we would like, and we've talked to some of our friends, uh, that also live in the neighborhood that, you know, to kind of, you know, maybe that's something that we do, uh, at, you know, in the next year or so, but nothing fully baked, as you said, the only thing that we are really focused on is making sure that, you know, is expanding me line. I love it. Can, can I, can I float a concept by you real quick? Yeah, go mm -hmm. ahead. This is not a part of the podcast you were expecting, but that's what we do here. We're always keeping you on your toes. So I just thinking of this because, you know, you're from Houston, Tracy. I, I know that Viet Cajun is a thing in, in, uh, in Houston. I'm just saying, I think, it, I think it could be awesome. I think it could be awesome. Well, there's boiling crab out here. Is, would we consider that Viet Cajun? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually the founders are Vietnamese and they're, I think they started in Dallas, actually, not Houston, but um, yeah, it is. And uh, so there was another one called Hot and Juicy, but they're out of Vegas, Las Vegas, and they've already closed. Uh, but yes, I, so someone actually asked me the other day, what do I, knowing that I'm from Houston, like, wh what do I think about having like a Creole or Cajun restaurant out here? I absolutely love Cajun and Creole food. I just don't know if the LA market would love it as much as like the Texans and Louisianans because it is so full of butter. But mm. one of the first things I go back home and I eat, that's like one of the first things I do. So, but it's also only good when the crawfish are fresh. Yes. We went to boiling crab uh, a month ago or less than a month ago and Tracy didn't even get uh, because they weren't fresh. Yeah, I won't eat boiled crawfish. Or uh sorry, frozen crawfish. Right. Yeah. That's huge. That's a big that's a big factor that I hadn't even considered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. He's right about that. And you can, You have to have other things like shrimp and other and yeah. you know, all the different other seafood in order to like people like you that are just aficionados at you know. Well, I mean, the other seafoods, you know, you can sort of eat frozen or most of it actually kind of comes frozen anyway. People probably don't know that. But uh, crawfish is one of those things that you have to eat fresh. Otherwise, um, it has a very distinct smell and taste. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, and for those who are in the know, especially, I think that would be super off-putting. You, yeah. you could do a pop-up of some fun little thing like yeah, that, you yeah. know, like, you know, seasonal pop-up and mm -hmm. really, if you knew how to market it well and really get some... Yeah, you know, that would be fun. Yeah. You know, crawfish. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Well, hey, now now I feel like I gotta go back and revisit the boiling crab through and, <laughs> and really like pay pay like, you know, uh closer attention. But uh th that's fresh. Yeah. That's Call true. That's true. Fresh. And 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 that's a great tip. Let me just say I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Before we, you know, wrap up, I just wanted to ask you both one final question, and that's as you reflect back on your journeys, 
what are you most proud of so far? Um, I would say for me, what I'm most proud of is uh, I am not from the food and beverage industry. And um, when we opened, you know, one month before lockdown, not only did I have sort of have to jump in and learn everything on the fly, I had to really sort of like dive in and get on top of, you know, I'm a pusher. Like I, I kind of, I'm very headstrong and, you know, I had to get on top of DoorDash and Uber Eats and all of that. Literally within days I was on all of the different delivery partner apps. Um, but you know, we've had to go through so many, we had to go through COVID, um, virtually brand unknown, but yet we started to survive and thrive during that time. Then we went through, um, job, uh, you know, food supply issues, uh, then we went through lots of uh, huge price inflations. Then we opened Sunset right in the middle of the writers and actors strike. And then, you know, it's just every day has been such a challenge, but I have, um, you know, persevered. And I would say that that's something that I'm really proud of myself and proud of the, the brand for. What would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, again, um, you not being from the business, uh, I was super nervous about doing this whole thing um, from the get go. And you have been nothing but like, you know, seeing this through and not giving up and not just throwing in the towel and, you know, wasting all kinds of money and just, you know, and um, so, yeah, I would say that I'm proud of you for, you know, just sticking with this as long because this is a pain in the ass every single day. And, uh, <laughs> and, and again, it, um, it, it's not always, I mean, there's a lot of accolades and a lot of things that are just also rewarding. Um, but the day to day grind is something that is not, um, not something for everybody. And, uh, Tracy is, you know, gone, gone through everything at this point. And so <laughs> well, look at that. He wants to win husband of the year complimenting me so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, it sounds like one way to make it through owning a business together is just offering your wife plenty of compliments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. An yeah. occasional pair of shoes. <laughs> That's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. Well, I want to say congratulations on all your success. I'm very impressed with your product. It's a great, great idea and concept, and I think you guys are doing it really well. I definitely urge everybody who's listening to go give Milai a try if you haven't already. Uh, Tracy and Chad, if people are looking for you or looking for Milai, where can they find you? So our original location is uh, 12222 Venice Boulevard. We're located uh, in Mar Vista, actually next to Fatty Martin, Little Fatty. And uh, our other brick and mortar is uh, Sunset and Gardner at 7501 Sunset Boulevard. Come and check us out. And I'm there every day. So come and say hi. And our other location oh, is sorry, yes. by USC, and it, but it's a, um, it's a pickup or order. Delivery. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, it's not a, not a uh, brick and mortar uh, sort of walk into. So but we kind of so you can't visit them there, but you can order food from them there. And how about online? Where can people find you on social? Uh, go to our um, website, which is uh, Milai Kitchen, M-Y-L-A-I Kitchen.com. Our Instagram is the, T-H-E, Milai Kitchen. Um, you can order both places and, of course, on Google as well. And, uh, yeah, those are the best places to order from us. And I'm sure we'll be able to catch uh, Shad at the Cheesecake Factory for his next birthday. But in the meantime, Tracy, Shad, thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you. you.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our guests, Father Saul, Tracy Davis, and Chad Davis for joining us. If you like what you heard today, dear listener, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, review, subscribe. Seriously, it all helps so much, so we truly appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another epic episode, but if you're looking for me in the meantime, you can find me at the LA Countdown on TikTok and Instagram. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U. N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find me on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.